want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 14. Altitude. Altitude. Tower, Hello, and thanks for listening to the podcast. My guest today is Major Mike Mongo Ryan, a good buddy of mine. He's a former FAPE, first assignment instructor pilot flying the T6, and then he moved on to the U2. He is currently a U2 instructor pilot and he's director of operations. He runs all the training for the U2 pipeline. He has quite a fascinating story. We're going to dig into flying the U2, some of its unique qualities, some of the hazards that come along with that, and just how challenging that platform is. But before we get rolling into the podcast, a few admin notes. This episode is sponsored by Hangar 24 Craft Brewing. Their main tap room is located on Redlands, California, where they brew all their beer in-house. They have additional tap rooms in Orange County, as well as Lake Havasu. I fell in love with Hangar 24 when I flew the Hangar 24 Airfest back in 2018. It's a great company that makes amazing beer. I'm excited to be a part of the Hangar 24 family. Encourage you to go over and check out Hangar24Brewing.com. And if you're in the SoCal area or Lake Havasu, swing by one of their tap rooms. I'd also like to thank Squadron Posters. Again, a company that I just absolutely love. and I've been a customer of theirs for several years. They have upped the game from just making posters to share the adventure and your journey through life. I would encourage you to swing by squadronposters.com and check out their bomber style artwork. It's a really cool way to display, again, your journey. And also, they have metal nose art. So if you want something that looked like it just came off the side of a plane with whatever graphic design you want on there, they can do that. Swing over to squadronposters.com and orders over $59 or more receive a 10% discount with the discount code RAIN10. That's RAIN10. I'd also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. Again, another company that I just absolutely love and I love their products. If you're looking to build a custom watch, this is their bread and butter. You can work with their design team to commemorate your journey, your organization, your unit, whatever it might be through a custom watch that's affordable and is high quality. Swing by wingmanwatch.com and you can use the code RAIN10 to receive a discount on any current watch that's on there or you can mention my name to receive a discount on your group customization order. Mention my name to receive a discount on your group order or if you see a watch you already love on the site, you can use the code RAIN10 to receive 10% off your watch purchase. Awesome. If you'll go ahead and say something real quick. Something real quick. Yeah, again. I say it every time, but these just keep getting better and better each and every time. (laughs) 
best sound check scene today. <laughs> awesome. Mongo, really excited to have you on the show. So Mike, Ryan, Mongo, YouTube pilot, good friend of mine. Thanks for coming on the podcast. If you wouldn't mind before we get rolling, if you'll tell yeah. everyone a little about who you are, what you're doing today, and how you got there. Um, Mike Ryan, Mongo, um, a YouTube pilot, uh, now the DO of the 1RS, which is our FTU out here at Beale. Uh, as my parents would like to say, I took the long way through college, uh, <laughs> bounced around a couple places. We can get into that if you want, but, uh, you found yourself. I found myself as my mom would like to say, uh, went, started out Texas A&M, did the Corps cadets for a year, got into the air force Academy, went to the Academy, played water polo for a year and a half, and then, uh, left, went to Santa Barbara where I finished up finally, uh, after switching majors and then commissioned through UCLA detachment into the air force. Yeah. So my pilot slot and the rest, as they say, is, uh, the beginning of history. <laughs> so a really roundabout way of getting involved in the air force there, which is just, I think a phenomenal story, but it goes to show there's no one path or one cookie cutter answer of how to get in the air force. So yeah, you now the director of operations of the flying training unit out there at Beale. So you are responsible for the daily or really the, the program management of getting pilots through training to fly the U2. What is a day yeah. in the, what does a day in the life of look like for a director of operations of U2 squadron? Mostly putting out fires, but uh <laughs> just fun. the uh, long and short of it is trying to, you know, we only have two, four two-seaters now uh in the inventory. Uh, and that's our primary trainer for the early phase BQ, uh basic qual for those that don't know. Um but the whole goal of the basic qual is to get the students to solo have them solo the airplane, and then we introduce them into what we call the high phase. So flying up at altitude in the full pressure suit uh, and operating the aircraft there. Then once they're finished with BQ, we move into the mission qualification phase or MQ. And that's all in the purview of the FTU here. So they uh, also get to uh, learn how to drive the car behind an airplane as a qualified mobile officer. So, yeah. So there's so much I want to talk about here. I think we'll start kind of at the beginning. I think the car is really what I want to talk about, but we'll skip that for now (laughs) and we'll get to that. But the, so you have four two seat variants of the U2. The U2 has been around since the 1950s, right? But these are newer ones. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 1955 was the first test flight out at uh, Groom Lake, uh, also known as Dreamland, also known as Area 51, whatever moniker you want to use. Uh, <laughs> the Actually, the first flight of the U-2 was an accident. It was actually supposed to be a taxi test, and the plane went airborne. You know, they did it, they did it with so, F-16, too. supposed to be a taxi yeah. test, and it took off. Didn't go right. right. It's weird. It's <laughs> weird. The pilot just went throttle up, and something happened. I don't know. How do you guarantee you're going to be the first, you know, first pilot to take a plane airborne? Just do right. it. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's been multiple variants over the years. Uh, anybody can do a Google search and look at those. Some of them are pretty interesting. Uh, but we're on the U2S now. Uh, the majority of our aircraft rolled off the assembly line in the 19, late 1980s. Uh, there are a few conversions from what was called the uh, e, uh, the TR1s uh, back in the late 60s. Those were converted up to the S model. So now everything in the Air Force inventory is a U2S. Longer wing, bigger engine, 
uh, new avionics, which we're updating again. Uh, uh, everything's slowly being modernized in either exterior or interior to the aircraft. So they're, you compare the new S models to the A models from back in the 50s, and it, they're two different airplanes. Uh, it's 50% bigger than them, uh, ones from the 50s as well. So That's crazy. It's, but the mission is intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and it's still doing yeah. that, obviously, with newer technology, correct? Yeah, so the mission has evolved, but it's still primarily intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. So we either do uh, flying in international airspace, monitoring other uh, nations, or we're in a permissive environment like the uh, desert and monitoring, you know, terrorist activity and that kind of thing. Uh, but anywhere there's a worldwide hotspot, we are ready at a moment's notice to send uh, assets and people wherever they're needed. So it's it's kind of a, we call it a uh, low-density, high-demand asset. So there's not a lot of us, but we're constantly needed. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of people don't quite understand, especially in the modern age where you're like, ah, we'll, we'll just get it via the internet. But there's still a real demand for actually having aircraft flying over territories, collecting data and things of that nature. Yeah, so the, the big thing, and, you know, I've heard it at school too is you know why why do we still have airborne intelligence assets you know why what can't be done with a satellite and the the basic thing that a lot of people just don't grasp is what a satellite does and how it does it right so it's not just fixed over a point staring at something it's orbiting the earth and you only get a certain period there it's actually collecting on the area that it's that we the uh United States may want to look at it, whereas an airborne asset can literally loiter there for a longer period of time over that area. Yeah, and so. it can and transition from point A to point B if if the yep. battlefield is changing and we want like a real-time yeah. adjustment versus, I don't know anything about yeah. space, but I imagine yeah. just a little bit tougher to make that happen. Yeah, much more dynamically taskable uh, and obviously much easier to modify and add uh, new sensors, new technology, whatever you want to put on it, you know, we're essentially just a big modular vehicle. Gotcha. Whereas once you launch something into space, it's there. <laughs> it's You're stuck with what you sent up there. <laughs> Dang it. We should have changed that. Uh, <laughs> should have used millimeters instead of inches and wouldn't have slammed a satellite into the Mars, but you know, uh, they've only oh, done once, right? Yeah, yeah. What's the worst that can happen? Real expensive. Um, so kind of back paddling just a little bit. So again, you said that there's uh, the four very or four two seaters that you guys have, you know, in the yeah. F 16, we have the D model and they're fewer and far between. Most of those are at the schoolhouse. And one thing I didn't understand or didn't anticipate is when I rolled into Shaw Air Force Base for the first time, I thought my first block 50 F 16 ride was going to have someone in my back seat, which was not the case. So once you leave, like there's no, once you leave the schoolhouse, there's no reason to have someone in your back seat. We still fly them because we needed the jets, right? But yep. is that kind of the same mentality yeah. you two? Yeah, the the majority of our two-seat IPs are all within the FTU here. Um, the 99th, which is the ops squadron here at Beale, has a couple of two-seat guys, mainly because they used to be uh, FTU instructors, and we want to you know maintain that currency in case we need them. Um, but all the FOLs that it's only single seats everywhere else. Uh, so once they're qualled up, 
just like any of the other single seats, you know, it's it's on you to know your system, to know your jet, to know the mission of the day and execute appropriately. Yeah. So for the F-16, when you do a check ride, you're flying in formation and obviously your evaluator is your wingman or your flight lead, depending on your qualification. They're evaluating how the mission's going and you come back and watch the tapes. And that's what your mission check ride is. Instrument check ride, you're getting chased and they have a radar lock if the weather's bad or they're just flying in close formation uh, to match altitudes and things like that. How does that work in the U-2? Yeah, so the, uh, we like we talked about, you know, basic check and mission check uh, are the big ones, but the mission check is done in the single seater. Uh, if we have the sensors available home station, the preference uh, is to have them fly a censored bird. Um, so they're actually having to operate the systems that they'll use downrange. Um, but that's not always available. Uh, so a large portion of the mission qual check ride actually gets accomplished with, uh, the EPE, the emergency procedures evaluation. So it's, it's that coupled with systems knowledge and, uh, mission integration. Uh, so our, I hesitate to call them simulators. We call them, uh, mission procedures trainers, MPTs, uh, cause there's no visuals, there's no movement. It's, it's a full up working cockpit with all the switches and stuff in it and screens. So you can, you can still execute everything in the cockpit that you would in an actual censored up bird. Um, and that's in their dial of death. The <laughs> evaluator can throw whatever they want at you. Uh, and you've got to, you know, execute appropriately. Whereas the, there's certain mission scenarios that we try and simulate. Uh, we have secure voice. We can try and talk to the jets uh, for mission scenarios. Um, but ideally what we try and do on the mission checks is pair them up either if there's exercises available or, you know, some sort of actual real world employment here, CONUS, uh, that they can go actually do mission things on. doesn't always happen, Yeah. but yeah, they're, they're off by themselves. And then the only other, uh, observed evaluated item is the, the landing portion when they come home and the evaluators in the mobile. Jason. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I think a lot of people who don't fly single seat aircraft, like that's a foreign concept because, you know, most aviation, you're used to the evaluator sitting right next to you or behind you or whatever, you know, might be. And so yeah. being the plane by yourself and just doing the mission or having someone you know <laughs> chase you is just different for, for most. Yeah. Um, I think we, we did a couple check rides where like the weather was just really bad and put someone in like the pit, which is just like the worst experience for everyone involved. But yeah. So to take someone from, cause everyone who's showing up to the U2, they're not coming straight from pilot training. Or are you guys doing that now? Uh, so yes and no. Um, so the hours requirements and everything is still there. So for the most part, I will say no, nobody comes straight from pilot training. You have to have had at least a, a tour in something, uh, where you normally see your first time, uh, like first, I guess it would be second, uh, station assignments are the people that came from FAPES like us. Yeah. Uh, most of the time the, you know, other MDS, MWSs are all, uh, second, third assignment kind of thing, uh, before they get their hours or get the experience. Cause we prefer people to be instructor pilots before they apply. 
Um, we have had a few that meet the hours requirement, but don't have that instructor stink on them. Um, and a few of them, you know, being as selective as we can and be like, Hey, uh, we will hold your application on file. You know, let us know when you hit IPUG or whatever, that kind of thing. If, if it doesn't, if they're borderline. Yes. Um, but the selection process itself is, you know, one of those things where we try and, we try and set people up for success before they come here. We don't want to bring somebody who's marginal and then, Hey, you failed. Sorry. That was your one and only shot. Uh, try you know, try again next life. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I think is, is obviously it's different than most planes in the air force. There are a couple other, that are similar like it, but everyone goes to pilot training. They graduate pilot training. They get assigned an aircraft. If you're a FAPE, you recompete at the end of your FAPE tour Yep. Uh, and then you get your aircraft, but the U2 program, you actually apply to, you guys bring them out there if they make the first cut for interviews to kind of see how they feel. And then there's also a flying portion of the interview, yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah. So the, before we get to the interview stuff, the, uh, the new thing that you kind of alluded to is the, they call it fact first assignment companion trainer. They're FAPES. They just work in our companion trainer shop with the T-38As. Uh, so we have two right now. It's the test case going on. Uh, and they will fly in the companion trainer shop until they get their hours. Uh, and then they will, you know, do their interview. Um, but if that is a success and we're hopeful, then that is something that we can continue to do where we pull people straight out of pilot training to come essentially be FAPES here at Beale. Uh they're still not going directly to the U2 because we've we've seen that in the past where we tried interviewing people that didn't meet the hours requirement and they ended up bending metal. So yeah, and so let's kind of dive into the U2 and why it's unique. I know very little about it other than the fact that you guys are wearing a spacesuit, which is insane. But it puts you in the regime of flying where there's very little margin for error, correct? Because you're right yeah. from overspeeding to right to stalling and it's a, it's a very narrow window. So what is so difficult about flying the U-2? Yeah. So at, at mission altitude, you're flying in coffin corner essentially. So you're a few knots from overspeed and you're a few knots from stall. Uh, and then you're very sensitive to temperature changes, uh, turbulence at altitude. Uh, any number of things can make your day go bad in a quick way. We have autopilot. Um, it does a pretty good job. Uh, about handling the day-to-day, uh, but when things are dynamic with the atmosphere up there, it uh, <laughs> it can lead to a bad day quick. Um, we've lost people uh, all over the world uh, for various reasons. In Korea, we lost uh, some, at least a few people uh, due to, we call it stratospheric turbulence on the east side of the peninsula, where the uh, mountain wave air mixes at altitude coupled with the temperature differential between the west and the east coast of the peninsula and you get some pretty crazy turbulence up there and you've got 104 foot of wing and if those start flapping like a bird you're you know getting to the point where you're gonna have the wing off light and uh What what is the wing off light there's no light. <laughs> <laughs> My wing just went away. Um, no, the yeah, but the uh, <laughs> the the regimes we fly. So it's you know it's it, they call it the dragon lady. You know you're, you're either dancing with the dragon or you're dancing with the lady. It's you know it's it's 
cable pulley. There's no uh, flight assisted hydraulics. There's it's just you and the aircraft. Um, so at altitude, she actually handles very well, uh, smooth when there's not extenuating circumstances. Uh, it's it's pretty serene, graceful yeah. up there. Uh, but down low, trying to land, you're, you're literally wrestling with the dragon, trying to get it on the ground and you have to be on your game, ready to go, putting the aircraft where you want it to go, or it will put you where it wants to go. Yes. So it's, it's, you get, you gotta stick and rudder, fly the jet, you know, get it to the ground, uh, she doesn't like landing in ground effect. So you really have to get it all the way down to stall. And that's where we're kind of talking about the drivers. I do want to talk about the flight controls, but I think now that we're yeah. landing to like down low and how difficult it is to land the U2, visibility is obviously one issue, the performance yeah. and how the jet handles. So how do you guys address that? How do you mitigate the landing and who gets yeah. to drive the fast car? Yeah. Uh, so the, the landing phase is the what I would consider the hardest part about flying the aircraft. Um, it only gets exponentially harder when you put the spacesuit on. Uh, your visibility goes from you know here to about here. Uh, so about 180 degrees out to about probably 120. So you can't even see your own shoulders. If you want to look at your wing, which you won't be doing, you'd have to turn your head all the way to your shoulder and be looking back over your shoulder to see your wings. Um, and the whole time you're landing, you got to keep the wings off the ground anyway, uh, or you'll ground loop and break airplanes. Um, but the whole goal, so you're in this spacesuit, you're coming down after a long mission. You can't see your wings. We have no radar altimeter because weight is, uh, the enemy and you come down and the goal is to get the jet to two feet above the ground measured from the bottom of the main gear to the surface of the runway stall it, pivot it around that point, have the tailwheel land first and put it on the runway. Uh, we want the tailwheel on the ground first, since that's where all your steering comes from on the ground. Uh, it is a tail dragger for lack of a better term. Uh, and it only has bicycle gear, uh, once flying. So the pogo wheels are used only on the ground for taxi. Uh, they are simply pinned into the wing. They're not part of the aircraft. So you have the big beefy main gear and then the little tiny skateboard resin wheel, tail wheel. Yeah. That's, you know, at the back of the airplane. Uh, so trying to land that and we do practice, you know, no voice where you, you know, simulate your landing where there isn't a mobile. But the whole point of the mobile is to be that to be that safety observer, to make sure you're landing safely, keep you pointed in the right direction and giving you correct altitude callouts from 10 feet all the way down to the runway. Yeah. I'll have to post uh, a video of this on, on my Instagram because I mean, again, it's, it's yeah. a souped up Camaro, right? That it's too uh, or it's a pilot. Yeah. So you have to be a qualified YouTube pilot to be a mobile officer, uh, that essentially at the FOLs, the mobile is also the backup pilot. So if something were to go wrong the night prior morning of, with the primary pilot, the mobile is the person that's going to jump in to fly that mission. Okay. So the day prior, they're mission planning together. They're doing all the stuff together because either one of them will be flying the mission the next day. Okay. 
Um, but the, yeah, the mobiles are qualified guys. Uh, I think there's a couple of Camaros left overseas. Most of the, uh, newer mobiles are all Dodge chargers. Okay. Um, they had the quote unquote pursuit edition for a couple of years, which I think was just a cop car. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but we've got the light bar, uh, everything on the inside, uh, the big thing we need is the acceleration piece. Um, so we don't really care about zero to 60, but we do need that kind of pickup uh, to go race and get in a good position behind the aircraft to give accurate altitude callouts. Um, so most of the uh, vehicles over the years have all been higher performance vehicles. The, uh, the original was actually a uh, El Camino. <laughs> this would be in a museum somewhere i hope right the it's it's mind-boggling to me that the radar altimeter you know b- not being an aerospace engineer that that would be such a critical like piece of information to have to the pilot to help land but it weighs too much to put in the plane you know i mean like that's the cost savings and how yeah so i mean is. you kelly johnson who designed it is is genius, was genius, uh, remains to this day an absolute genius of aircraft design. So he took an F-104, he broke the wings off, changed the tail, put new wings on, changed the gear, and here you go, Air Force, here's the U-2. Uh, but the whole thing was the reason they went away from the tricycle gear, because the weight of the gear was too heavy. Yeah. So the the pilot math that we use is for every pound of weight you carry, that's an additional foot that you don't climb Really, when you're at altitude. So uh, when you're trying to see longer distances, obviously you want to be higher. So every little bit uh, gets you higher up, which means you can see further. And back in the day, it meant that you were, in theory, out of range of threats. Yeah. That is just, it's wild. So going back up to altitude, I know we can't talk about the, uh, how high the U2 can go, but you wear a spacesuit. Yeah. So the unclassified is 70,000 plus yeah. uh, is the altitude we can go. Um, but where this, where the pressure suit comes in is, so there's something called Armstrong's line, Armstrong's limit. So it's around 60,000 feet. I think the range is 59 to 62,000 feet, uh, depending upon atmospheric pressure, blah, 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 blah. Science stuff. So on and so forth. Yeah. (laughs) Not not my thing. (laughs) Yeah. So at that limit, uh, there's not enough atmospheric pressure to keep fluid in solution. And we as humans are uh, giant bags of solution. (laughs) So water, blood, viscous solutions, anything. So if we were to be at that pressure altitude without the spacesuit, your time of useful consciousness is measured under a second and your volatiles in your body will go, the, the gas will go out of solution. Your blood will boil. So they simulate that for us when we're doing our, we do an enhanced chamber ride where we are in the pressure suit and they take you all the way up to the altitudes you're going to be flying at. And then they, you have a rapid D at that altitude. Uh, and so the pressure suit immediately inflates. Uh, there's a netting inside the uh, arms, actually. 
I'm getting I'm getting the full tour here. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I've so there's a link netting. Yeah. In the arms and legs, that essentially keeps the limbs bent at a desired uh, state. So if there was no link netting, your arms would go out straight. Well, that doesn't help me fly an airplane, right? So if I'm fully decompressed, so they bring the elbows at a bend so you can grab the controls and the knees, instead of going locked straight out are bent so you can manipulate the rudders. That's crazy. How, if you were at altitude, I know it depends because I had a rapid decompression. I had two rapid decompressions at 43,000 feet. So yeah. I just rolled and pulled, and I was below 10,000 feet in a matter of 30 seconds or so. Yeah. You can't do that in the U2. Nope. Uh, you drag it out, uh, you're deal- but you're dealing with being you know, decompressed at that point. You're, you're in the pressure suit, so you're safe. Uh, but until you get down, and she doesn't like to descend, she doesn't like to slow down. Uh, but with the drag, you know, you're talking tens of minutes before you're back down to an altitude where the pressure suit's going to, you know, deflate and you're at a, you know, safer physiological altitude. Uh, that's, I mean, it's wild to me. And then obviously if you throw in the complexity of a mission, if you had something like this happen, you know, yeah. you might not be able to descend. Yeah. Yeah. To- if you're in bad guy territory, you're not descending. So you, now you're dealing with it until you can descend. Uh, there's a lot of considerations. Um, but <laughs> it's just mind-boggling to me. It's yeah. such it's such a cool plane. Yeah. That. So, but the pressure suit, you know, it it takes some getting used to. Some people don't make it through the interview process because of the pressure suit. Um, they uh, they don't like the confinement, the claustrophobia of it. Yeah. Um. But once you're used to it, it's it's no different than putting on any other, you know, flight gear. Uh, it does it, it. The helmet and suit are technically two separate systems. So the helmet is keeping your face essentially 100 percent O2 the whole time, whereas the suit uh, is pressurized off of uh, conditioned bleed air okay. uh, through a vent hose. So with, so with that too, I mean, it's not like you can just walk out to the plane and go fly a high altitude mission. It says there's a lot of prep that goes into it like the day prior. And then when you show up, what does it look like from showing up yeah. to work to when you're actually taking off? Yeah. So, uh, we have a, an orchestra of folks to get everything going. So the day prior to a mission, you're, you're doing your mission planning. Uh, you're figuring out what the targets are for the day. Yes. We call them targets, even though we're not physically shooting them you're going after them though yeah (laughs) you're just you're you're Uh, taking yeah so we uh do all of the required mission stuff um make sure that our physiological support division our uh physiologists are prepped for the next day they know who's flying so they can prep that spacesuit they can prep the backup pilot spacesuit uh, run them through the pre-checks that have to be done to make sure the integrity of the suit is good, that it doesn't have any leaks. Um, maintenance slash ops will get what's called a sensor call the day prior, so they know what's going to be on the bird for the following day's mission. Um, and then morning of, pilots will show X time before takeoff. Uh, they'll go do their motherhood briefing, 
uh, get an intel brief from our intel folks on the current situation where they're flying for the day. Uh, bad guys, friendlies, whatever. Uh, what the goal of the mission is, what they're going after. And then they go over uh, for the single-seaters. Uh, we used to have to do what was called uh, pre-flight pre-breathing. Uh, where you had to be on oxygen for an hour prior to takeoff to help denitrify yourself. Um, it's no longer a requirement, but it is a desired item. So, yes, with the CARE mod, which was the cockpit altitude reduction effort, so instead of being pressurized at 29,000 feet in the cockpit, it now pressurizes to like 14. Uh, so it's good. It's sitting at the top of McKinley versus the top of Everest. Yeah. So that's a bit, that's a big uh, you, difference. Yeah. Uh, it is far less fatiguing, uh, flying the missions in the single seats now. Um, and knock on wood, we haven't had the nearly the same rate of deccompression sickness that we did in the, uh, non care birds. Is that uh, something so you we, guys would have you know, a good bit or? Yeah, uh, people, you know, we find out well after the fact when people retire. Oh, yeah, man, I got bent every time I flew, you know, and it hits <laughs> people in the joints. The the bad ones where people get uh, what's called a neuro hit, a neurological hit. So it bubbles in the brain and you lose consciousness, you lose cognitive function. It can be a bad day. Um, so the pre-breathing is supposed to help get that nitrogen out of your body. Uh, you can never get all of it, uh, but you want to reduce the amount of nitrogen in your blood. And then so while the pilot is pre-breathing, the mobile officer, the uh, chase car driver is prepping the jet, doing the walk around, setting up the cockpit, getting everything ready for the pilot to be integrated. Uh, maintenance while this is going on is making sure there's cooling air, everything's plugged in. Uh, the sensors people are making sure all the sensors are in good working order. And then at step time, the pilot either walks or gets driven out to the airplane, uh, gets integrated into the seat. Uh, so those same physiologists will strap the pilot into the aircraft. Uh, they do pressure checks on the suit again uh, once he's in the chair. And then uh, once everything is strapped in, good to go, mobile gives him one last look over, uh, closes the canopy on him, and then it's mission time. So the whole thing, you know, like I said, we have an orchestra of people there. It's, you know, tens of people running around this aircraft, you know, like ants trying to get everything ready to go. And that's one of the greater things uh, I've found is, you know, there's a lot of buy-in on the maintenance side. There's a lot of buy-in from everybody that works with and on the airplane. Everybody wants the thing to work, wants the mission to go. And there's not as much of the ops maintenance animosity that some other uh, areas have. Yeah. So for sure, for sure. Yeah. I, I think that's why I saw like on the, de on the demo side of the house when I was doing that, since it was, you know, eight maintainers and they saw the immediate impact of the mission, which is either, you know, it took off and had a successful sortie, but they're watching it the entire time. There was complete buy-in, you know, because if it, if it went wrong, they, they felt it. And, you know, it was like their work, didn't work and they're disappointed versus it's tough when maintenance is launching an aircraft out and they might not see it for two to six hours. It, it's just gone. They have no idea what's happening. So it's really tough to, I guess, pull themselves out of the, 
trying to generate an aircraft mindset to, hey, this is a bigger, bigger picture and the impact they're actually having. Yeah. And obviously, obviously with us, with the small fleet dynamics, I mean, it's, you know, we, we only have the amount of jets that we have. It's not yeah. like, you know, there's a hundred F-16s on a ramp. It's, you know, we only have the jets that are there. None of the FOLs have a lot of aircraft. So it's, you know, all hands on deck to get a mission going. And then they're doing other maintenance actions on the other birds while the mission's airborne. So how on average, like on a, a combat sortie, what's the length of that versus like a normal training mission? Uh, so the training missions are, you know, it's all soulless driven, right? So the, uh, for the BQ side, it's two to three hours is about the average. And then when we get into the mission qual phase, the long, I think the longest training mission that students do now is seven hours. Uh, used, used to be nine. So we, <laughs> we, we chopped two hours out of it. Yeah. Uh, but the combat missions, all the stuff down range, uh, it obviously is dictated by what we're doing that day. Yeah. And then what the periodicity is so that we can sustain the ops that way. So, uh, most of the FOLs you're looking at probably eight hour minimum, uh, sortie durations. Um, and then it goes all the way to, you know, max. Yeah. That, so. that to me is great. I think my longest sortie was an 8.4. But, you know, by the time you get in the jet, uh, you're sitting in the jet an hour prior, and then yeah. you're sitting in the jet about 45 minutes after landing just because of maintenance having to t- yeah, and tow and park in the plane and all sorts of stuff. But for you and the U-2, that, let's say, an eight-hour sortie from takeoff to landing is really like 10 hours or even longer yeah. sitting in the suit. Yeah, you're showing hours prior to takeoff uh, for all your other stuff, and then you've got debrief and maintenance debrief after the sortie. Uh, so they're they're long days. Uh, I know it's been asked before, but obviously going to the bathroom that's all integrated in the system. But like on a twelve hour sortie, eating something. Yeah, so uh, you can only pee in the suit, no poop. <laughs> so you got to meter your you got to meter your diet the day prior, and as I told the new guys, you know, know thyself, figure out <laughs> what you can eat and still have a good combat offload before you go fly. <laughs> uh, the that's, you know, rule number one for flying high missions. Uh, otherwise you join the illustrious group of people known as strato shitters. <laughs> There's a plaque in the, uh, bathroom next to the heritage room and, uh, that you will be immortalized forever. <laughs> uh, but the, yeah, so you have water, uh, and food, both accessible through what's called a uh, food port or drink port. It's just a straw hole with a pressure flapper valve on the inside of the helmet. Uh, so your drink tube and your food tube are the same diameter, uh, but the drinks are, man, they're probably a half a quart maybe or a full quart bottle. Yeah. Uh, so what we tell guys is take one bottle per hour minimum. Uh, so you're sitting in a contained pressure vessel, right? And you have the sun directly on you. You have whatever temperature you set your cockpit at, that's on you. But even if we were to not have vent air, your core body temperature would increase one degree for every 10 minutes. So vent air is a, a must. So your, your body's keeping nice and conditioned, but even with that, 
you're still losing water, right? So yeah. you're getting dehydrated, sitting at a higher body altitude. You're breathing 100% O2, which dries you out. So staying hydrated is key. Uh, and then the tube food uh, is the other piece, right? So you can't pop. You can. You're not supposed to. I know people have. But you're not supposed to open the space helmet at altitude because if you were to have a decompression right then, you'd be dead. Yeah, you're done. Uh, um, so the tube food port, all the single seaters have what's called a tube food heater. It's just a little induction heater, uh, right by your hip. Uh, you put the tube in there, close the lid, you turn the heater on and, uh, hopefully you don't forget about it. Otherwise it will explode. And then you're cleaning up food mess, uh, for part of your sortie. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, there's a variety of flavors. Everybody's got their favorite. All the fruits are generally pretty safe. Uh, I think the chicken tortilla soup was my favorite. That's... And then we also have some caffeinated options. So there's a caffeinated chocolate pudding and a caffeinated apple pie. Um, both of them have, I think, over 200 milligrams of caffeine in them. Yeah, just get you going. So, yeah, and we, we fly with, you guys fly with Go Pills, we fly with Go Gel. So it's a, it's a different... Mix, it's the same mixture, but in a different form because, again, you can't pop the helmet to take a pill. Right. You got to be able to take it through the food port. Gosh, those are yeah, long stories. I I definitely had to take a couple go pills when I found myself like on hour four, <laughs> middle of the night. Satcom was like the bad crypto. It's just static for hours, just like, <laughs> just, just make it all in, <laughs> make it in. Uh, I was like, I'm not going to make it back home. Um, so, that to me, I mean, it, there's just so many things that have to be overcome. And again, you're operating in such an austere environment that is not friendly to human beings. So it's impressive that I think that we have figured out, not we, but people have figured out, because I'm not smart enough, how to operate and how to capitalize on that environment. When it comes to when it comes to flying there, because I know you alluded to a little bit in the coffin corner. What I mean, what does it look like? You have autopilot that helps you out a little bit or you know, to a certain degree. But how in, how intensive is it for the pilot to manage that as well as manipulate all the sensors and what's going on with the mission? So right now, uh, and this is ever-changing, we're getting sensor upgrades here in the next couple of years that are going to kind of drastically change how we operate day-to-day. Uh, but right now, it's more systems maintenance when you're at altitude uh, than operation. So most of the sensors, the pilot is not physically operating uh right now they're being run from our uh, what we call our dgs our distributed ground station or ground site uh there's they're spread all over the world but whoever is tagged with running that mission they are the ones that are actually ingesting the intelligence that we're producing and putting it out to the rest of the world whoever needs to know it um that said, there are certain uh, sensor sets that we are ourselves running. Um, so as we you know, get into the next couple of years, it'll be more hands-on in the aircraft. The autopilot will, will fly your nav plan as long as there's no interruptions, right? So as long as you don't have hiccups in your solution or you lose GPS satellites or whatever. Uh, or however you're 
descri- describing your nav solution at that time, I guess. Um, yeah. But the autopilot's taking care of the flying. You still have to keep an eye on it because every once in a while it'll do something that you didn't tell it to do. Uh, so you got to be able to be ready to re-hand fly uh, every time. But then you're also, you know, constantly monitoring aircraft health, sensor health, um, checking, you know, visually outside. If you're flying the EOIR sensor, you know, instead of taking great pictures of the tops of clouds, uh, how about we take some pictures where there aren't any? Yeah. So that's uh, one of the, you know, things that's nice about having somebody in the chair is you can modify mission on the fly to, you know, maximize your collection plan. So, yeah, and that's, I mean, the benefit of having a human there. And I think that's the benefit when we talk about close air support or, you know, humans flying fighters, right? You, you have the ability to adjust on the fly to actually yep. make those gut calls and, and make those adjustments. So like you said, yeah. if you're looking at uh, electrical optical specter and you're looking at the top of clouds, maybe this is not the most beneficial point to be flying over taking pictures when you could modify it. I was kind of shift here just a little bit because we've talked a lot about the U2 and we're kind of been out of order from what my normal podcasts are, which I think has been fascinating because I'm just fascinated by the U2, <laughs> but talk a little bit about, about you and like kind of what you see like works for people joining the Air Force to overcome hurdles, to fight adversary. So is there anything like you would have any pro tips for people who are either pursuing some kind of passion, some kind of career that have hurdles in the way? How did you overcome those? How did you deal with that? Uh, the <laughs> For me, the big thing is it just breaks down to persistence. Um, if you know what you want to do and you have a goal that you know you want to achieve, you have to press. You have got to keep going for it. There will be hurdles. There will be setbacks. There will be things you were not planning for uh, along the way. Uh, I mean, my three, four colleges to get to graduation just to be able to get commissioned. That's not a normal path. Um, But the whole time I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to fly in the Air Force. Uh, So the whole time I'm doing that, I have to have the end goal in sight and not let whatever is happening to me at whatever time push that to the side or prevent me from getting there. Um, But you knowing what you want and pushing fighting for it is pretty much, you know, the thing that I think anybody wanting to do something should keep in their mind be that the air force or whatever you're doing in life. Yeah. That's what I mean. I think too, I've echoed it throughout like all the podcasts I've done and then touring on doing the demo thing is people always ask like, well, I want to be a fire pilot or I want to do this or that. Like, how do I do that? And then it, I mean, it takes work yeah. and it takes persistence. It takes dedication because anything worth doing is not just going to come easy. So pushing through and making that happen is definitely a huge piece of it. Are yeah. there anything, it's- is there anything that you would recommend to 17 year old Mongo or 15 year old Mongo? <laughs> if you had to do it all over again. Oh man. Uh, I don't know if anything life-wise I could give to 17-year-old Mongo would have made a difference. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, you think about it. I mean, we are the sum of all the parts that we are, right? So yeah. if I 
if I told 17-year-old Mongo to stay at A&M or, you know, to not leave the academy, I'd be somewhere else. More than likely, I'd be, I would be a different person than I am now. Yeah, no doubt. So that's a good way of looking at it. Well, before we wrap up, I would like to say, you know, thanks for taking the time. It's amazing to see what you're doing today. Because, again, we started our aviation career together in the Air Force yep. a long time ago. And so it's really cool <laughs> to see my buddies and what they're doing now and, like, just all the different amazing things that accomplished. So I really appreciate yeah. you taking the time to join me on the podcast. I think people are going to find the YouTube fascinating, your story fascinating. So, again, before we part ways, is there anything you'd like to say to the people listening? Here's the microphone. I'm handing you the microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Say something profound. Say something profound. All right. Uh, (laughs) Know and do your job. Yeah. And wear sunscreen. Yeah, there you go. I love it. (laughs) Mongo, thanks for uh, joining me in the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, It was awesome having you on and uh, look forward to seeing what you accomplish in the next 10 years and on. Thanks for having me, Rain. Absolutely. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, wherever you're listening, hit subscribe. And if you can, leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That definitely helps out. Until next time, don't bring a week. <laughs>